Well, praise the Lord. It's great to see everybody today. And we are back in our text here in Hebrews. Delighted to come back to this passage of Scripture because we've uh, been really studying the practical theology of, of what um, has been given to us here in the New Covenant. You know, the New Covenant uh, in Hebrews is very profound. Uh, it's very deep. It's very technical. But really, the book of Hebrews is wonderful because it takes all that technicality, all of that theological precision, and it gives us some very practical uh, points of application so that we understand that what is being given to us here is not something that simply relates to head knowledge. It's not just something that has to do with the way that we understand the Bible theologically, but really everything in the Bible in terms of theology is for one ultimate purpose, and that is to live out your theology. That's the whole goal of the Christian life, is to take what you learn and live it, in, in, or live in light of uh, what you're learning. So that's, uh, that's what, what we're at, or that's where we are here in Hebrews, these passages. And last week, we looked at um, the practical theology of genuine worship and what that consisted of. And today, I want to talk about another aspect of the practical theology of the New Covenant dealing with gospel assurance or what the author of Hebrews describes here as the confession of our hope. So let's ask the Lord to bless our time and we will dive right in. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge you as the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we are desperate for you. We acknowledge, Lord, that we desperately need the strength and the power through your Spirit to help us to live a life that is in conformity with your Word, with your standards, with your commandments. Help us, O oh Lord, to delight in the law of the Lord today as we meditate on your law day and night. Give us the strength, Lord, to be uh, blessed in every season like that tree that is firmly planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit and whose, whose leaves does not wither. Uh, Father, help us to be constantly Christians that are productive in the kingdom, bearing fruit. As Jesus said, if you do not bear fruit, the Father loves those that are His and He prunes those that are His, but if they do not bear fruit, He cuts them off and casts them into the fire. And so, Lord, we understand that a productive Christian life is essential in the gospel. Bless us, Lord. Give us understanding and wisdom as we look at Your Word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Romans chapter 10, in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, and then what comes after that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's really important about that verse there in Romans chapter 10 is the word that. Because what it means is that part of genuine Christianity is our willing to assent to truth, to theological content. I don't know about you, but you know, after being a Christian for, oh, I don't know, I'm a 20 years or so now, there's a, a, a battle in the Christian life. There's a war that is constantly surrounding us, constantly bombarding us. We are constantly under assault, under attack. The Bible calls us to a vigilant, sober Christian life. The Bible knows nothing about a carefree, careless, um, sort of a lovey-dovey, sort of a hippie prancing through a, a field of lilies, as it were. A careless Christianity where love is the operative word and nothing else matters as long as you love. Well, actually, in the Bible, the definition of love that is given to us is that love does no wrong. 
And part of doing no wrong is that you do not violate the commands of Scripture. Therefore, a biblical Christian love is a love that is informed by the gospel and by the truth of the gospel and by the truth of God's Word. I tell you, we live in a culture, in a world, we're surrounded, Pastor Chris alluded to this, we're surrounded by a culture that works incessantly hard, nonstop, constantly, uh, to precision. They seek to master the art of undermining Judeo-Christian principles. Everything in media, everything in entertainment, everything in popular pop culture, everything in mainstream media, everything around us, everything in fashion, everything in schools today is sort of informed by an anti-Christian attitude. We shouldn't be surprised about this, however, because Scripture told us that this was going to be our context. To use the language of Hebrews, this would be our wilderness experience. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some of you Pauline authors, authorship people would be like I do. <laughs> but we know who wrote the book of 1 John. Uh, the Apostle John, the beloved, wrote the book of 1 John, and he wrote it to a, at least one church, probably a group of churches in Asia Minor, who were surrounded by popular Gnostic and Doketic or Docetic philosophy ultimately rooted in a Platonic dualism. That's what the context of 1 John is about. That's why the emphasis in 1 John is about the fact that Jesus was not just an apparition. He wasn't a phantasm. He wasn't a figment of people's imagination. You remember, and I remind you how 1 John begins. 1 John begins by telling us who we have seen, who we have heard, and who we have touched with our hands. Jesus was not simply a figment, a spirit being flying around who seemed to have come in the flesh in Sark, but who actually came and took on human flesh. And the way that John saw it was that the churches he was writing to, they were surrounded by an atmosphere that would certainly try to undermine their basic Christian commitment to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That, that may not be the context that we are in, but regardless of the contemporary heresy and influence around us, all of it ultimately has the same source. So whether you're talking about Gnosticism or postmodernism, ultimately it goes back to the same diabolical source that gives rise to all evil and all heresy. Therefore, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is a concerned pastor. This is an old pastor. And the writing of 1 John is probably written in the late 80s, early 90s. John had lived a long life. He'd seen a lot. No doubt he was weary of the fight, weary of the warnings, weary of this anti-Christ oppression that sought to suppress Christian belief. But eventually this exiled pastor over to Patmos who would write the book of Revelation, ultimately this old pastor was not tired enough, was not, not too old to reiterate to the church that they had to be on their guard because many false prophets have already gone into the world. And though Antichrist may be coming, many Antichrists are already here. I mean, what else do you call uh, the types of things that are being taught. I tell you, I was studying at Starbucks the other day. That's the Christian office for some of you that don't know. It's the evangelical office for now until they try to force me to go in a certain bathroom, but we'll stop there. 
listening to a group of junior high kids doing homework, and I tell you, I cannot believe what they were learning. I was appalled. Everything had to do with gender. Everything had to do with liberalism. Everything had to do with uh, uh, immorality. Everything had something to do, and they were reading their homework out loud. I can hear the questions on their exams or whatever. And I was appalled at the liberalism. I was appalled at the worldview that is being given to the young people in this world, especially if they're in a public school system. Sorry, that's just the way it works. Your kids, if they're in public school, are being handed a particular worldview, and there's an agenda attached to it. That's why it's imperative that we hear the importance of that word. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that. You see, the word that introduces a necessity to embrace propositional truth. In other words, Romans 10.9 is not open to postmodernism. You have to embrace the propositional idea that Jesus was dead and that He was risen from the dead. You must embrace the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as it is taught in Holy Scripture. You cannot go making up your own gospel as the Gnostics were trying to do. Oh, we believe that Jesus seemed as if He came, but He didn't actually come in the flesh. Oh, and they used all this philosophical, sophisticated language to get the, 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 the first century uh, people of Rome, and some even, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, some even in the professing Christian church, in the visible Christian church, getting them ultimately to depart. So, Hebrews is critical here, because if you go back to Hebrews with me, back to chapter 10, I want to focus in today on this gospel confession, where the book of Hebrews says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is one of those messages that a pastor should just be able to knock out of the park, right? <laughs> because this is a softball text. This is a text that is just presenting to us the imperative of believing in the gospel. Oh, I know. It's so basic. It's so rudimentary. It's so elementary. It's so, you know, uh, it's so basic to Christian doctrine. Aren't you going to talk about something a bit deeper today? But remember what Romans says. If you will be saved, you must believe that. And that is for, you want to get deep, <laughs> the exegetical category there is a hati of content. You must believe the content of the gospel. And the content of the gospel surrounds the person and work of Jesus Christ. You deviate from that. And you lost your confession and you lost your hope, and you don't have salvation, and you don't have God, and you don't have spirituality either, and you cannot claim to be religious. You cannot claim to have some, some, some stake in the good news anymore. You have forfeited your hope. You see why the author now is telling us, hold fast. This word here, Hold fast is a word that literally speaks of a staunch devotion. Uh, there, there should be in every Christian here a staunch, stubborn unwillingness to move on the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A staunch, unwilling in the face of all imaginable pressure an unwillingness to compromise on one iota of the gospel. 
So being dogmatic is good? You better believe it. I love the ancient theologians. They didn't call it systematic theology. You know what they called it? Dogmatics. They used to call it dogmatic. They were dogmatic. <laughs> you get to some of these Reformed theologians, and man, they're dogmatic. <laughs> but, but, but we're not talking about tertiary issues. We're not talking about the mode of baptism. We're not talking about the type of style of church you're going to have, contemporary, traditional, We're not talking about whether you're going to have chairs or pews. We're talking about the heart and soul of our gospel. And in the book of Hebrews, it is called the the, the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope is a summary of the entire book of Hebrews. This is why the author of Hebrews has been laboring, I mean, three long chapters just to explain to us that the old is passing away and that the new has come, that that the arrival of Jesus Christ signals the doing away with the shadows and the types and the sacrifices and the Old Testament uh, sacrificial Levitical code, and that something new has come. Hebrews is devoted to showing us that our right standing with God is predicated on the notion of Jesus' sacrificial once-for-all death on the cross, and that this is the substance and essence of our confession and our hope as Christians. If we waver on that, we lose everything. We lose everything. So, quickly, I want to look at four things in this text. Number one, the responsibility that we bear. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1, a classic passage on this. Of course, we're talking about being faithful to the gospel, gospel fidelity, and so therefore, where else should we go other than Galatians chapter 1 to show you it is not enough? To have some kind of religious commitment. Uh, think of your coworkers. Think of uh, your encounters with people through evangelism, your family. They always try to offer you some kind of religious association. Oh, I believe. I'll never forget open air preaching. Young man walks by, tell, or, or older man actually walks by and tells me, Oh, I'm okay, my son's a minister. Some sort of attachment to some spirituality in the hope that that will somehow appease the conscience. But that's not the way that it works at all. Look at the Apostle Paul here, beginning in verse 6. You know this passage very well. But I want you to see the onus that is placed on the church. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God. And let me stop there, excuse me, for a different gospel. But let me stop there. I'm amazed at that too. You know why I'm amazed at that? Because we're not just dealing with any church here. This is an apostolic church. This is a church planted by the apostle himself. You ever had that notion? Boy, what if we just lived back in the Bible times? What would it be like to be back in the days of Jesus? Or the apostles to be back in the original generation of the apostles? Well, it it, it, it would definitely not result in any sort of superhuman spirituality. I can tell you that. Because under the guidance and under the superintendence of an apostle inspired by God to write Scripture, the Galatians were quickly deserting the gospel. You see? And he says here, to a different gospel which is really not another gospel and really not another one. That's what he means. There is no other one. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Boy, does not that just sum up our cultural context? There are those that want to disturb us, that want to distort the gospel of Christ. Okay, maybe you can't get rid of it altogether. There's just too many Christians out there. Too many evangelicals in the world. Maybe you can't get rid of it all together. You'll never get rid of all of it. But if what if we distort it? Well, the Apostle Paul says, well, it comes a point in time where you can distort it beyond recognition so that you no longer have a gospel. And he says here, 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what, you, what we have preached to you, this is critical, he is to be accursed. That's actually uh, an imperatival force there, which basically means this. The Christian church had an obligation to recognize the anathema of God upon a person that would distort the gospel. Does that characterize your devotion to the gospel? That when people so distort the gospel, they no longer have the gospel, are you prepared to be obligated as a Christian to see the anathema of God upon them? It is the curse of God. And and, and the church had to recognize that. They couldn't compromise that. They couldn't water that down. Well, they're, you know, uh, are they saved? I don't think so, but, you know, he or she is a really nice person. They were a really nice mom, dad. They were really a really nice family member. But do you understand that because they don't have the gospel, they are under the anathema of God? What is this whole Christian thing about? Heaven and hell hang in the balance. God does not give us the lake of fire so that we can get wishy-washy on the gospel. God does not present to us. Is heaven and hell, as some have pointed out, these are the loudest siren calls that God can give to man to awaken us to what is at stake. It's that simple. And therefore, the author of Hebrews is bent on telling us, hold fast, Uh, hold firm to this, don't let go of this. And he mentions it in different places. Let me, um, let me just show you again. Hebrews 3, 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So when Hebrews 10 is talking about the confession of our hope, It is referring to what it is that we boast about. How it is that Christ is our hope. Christ did it for me. Christ has died once for all sacrifice. He has sanctified Himself a people once and for all through His death and through His resurrection. Uh, Hebrews 3.14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast the the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, he tells Timothy what to do, and it's very orthodox, as you see things getting worse. How many people have I talked to just this week? who have told me those exact things. Things are getting worse. And Paul says, evil men, 2 Timothy 3, 13, imposters, they will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Listen now. You, however. See, see, God has his finger on his people. God cares about his children. The other kids in the playground might be, you know, disobedient to the parents, but you are not allowed to do that. The, 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 the world around us could be going as crazy as it's going, but you, the child of God, is not entitled to that. But you, however, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Same thing he's saying here. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, then guess what? Then we have the boast of saying we are partakers of Christ. So it's not just this responsibility that we bear. But here, I also want to focus on the redemption that we confess, what it is 
that we confess. This word here, confession, hamalageo, just simply means that we are prepared to say and to repeat the same thing that Scripture is saying. Right? Oh, and that's so hard to do when you have been, had an open opportunity, you've got an open door, and you're a Christian celebrity, and all of a sudden you're on, you're, you're on, uh, uh, you know, you're on cable news or you're on uh, mainstream media, and you have an opportunity to speak on behalf of the gospel, and how many buckle in that moment. I've seen it over and over. They get an opportunity, and you know what they do? I'm a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. I have great faith. I, I believe in the importance of faith. You would think that faith is God. There's so few who are willing to stand up there like Tim Tebow <laughs> and say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know it's hard to say His name. In that level, that arena, that pressure's on you. But by heaven, say His name. Don't compromise. Don't get soft with the king. You are a servant after all. You're a slave. You're under orders from the imperial palace of heaven not to compromise the message. The message is not yours. The message is his. And therefore, when Hebrew says we have to confess this, it's not saying get imaginative. Get uh, innovative with the message. Get creative with the message. Reimagine what it might be. No, 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 no. We are to be, I- I'm sorry, but we- we're just to divulge what is already said. I'm sorry that, that you think that that takes you out of the equation. Last time I heard, a slave does his master's bidding, right? A messenger is not there. You know, in the ancient world, the messengers would go throughout the towns, and what they would do is they would simply read the message. They had no dog in the race, in a sense. They weren't there to make it more creative for people to hear. No, no, no. They had their imperial commands. They would go to the town. They would open up the letter, and they would read it to the public. And that's what we're supposed to do with the gospel. Don't get creative. Don't get relevant. Don't get postmodern. Don't get comfortable. Don't try to relate. Tell them. Unless you repent, you will perish. Tell them Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved other than Jesus Christ. Tell them that there is only one gospel. Tell them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through him. These evangelical verses, they're so simple for us. Most of you have these memorized, and yet so many people in so many places with so many opportunities can't even squeeze out a verse. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that we are under constant pressure to compromise the most basic, rudimentary gospel that we know. And we can't do it. We cannot do it. Now, as far as this text goes, he already exhorted the church in light of Jesus' entrance into the holy place. Look there with me as far as this hope. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. He, he does, in, in a sense, there are two movements here, right? There is the movement of the Son into heaven, and there is the movement of the believer into heaven. And already on the basis of Christ's exaltation, he exhorts us in much the same way. Therefore, Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Oh, I'm sorry. Almost messed the punchline of the whole thing. He's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ. Here it is. Let us hold fast our confession. And because Christ has passed through the heavens, we have great encouragement that, guess what? He can sympathize with our weakness. He's been tempted in all things just as we were, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a perfect parallel to what we saw here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Same idea. But... 
There's also a sense in which here in Hebrews, let's go back to Hebrews 10, the comfort is not rooted so much in Jesus going into heaven, but guess what? In the fact that we will follow after him as our forerunner. Verse 19, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You see that? We we, we could say this, based on that, and then verse 23, let us hold fast. You see that? Yes, in the sense Christ has passed through the heavens, therefore, hold fast, hold firm, your confession to the end. But guess what? Because in the new covenant, God has so sanctified us, God has so forgiven us, God has so written His law into our hearts, put His law into our minds, so that we have, spiritually speaking, positionally speaking, we have, in a sense, already come into the holy place. This inaugurated eschatology, as it were. That, that is in league with all the passages in Scripture that talk about you are seated with Him in the heavenly places, present tense verb, already seated with Him. No, 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 not your body is not there. <laughs> but positionally in the economy of God, the way God sees you as a Christian is that you are as good as glorified if you're in Christ. That's why Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30 speaks of our glorification in the past tense. That's a crazy way of speaking, isn't it? It's a crazy way of talking. Talking about Christians as if they've already been glorified? What is that about? It's because we're united to Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, what we need, therefore, is a resolve And he gives us that as well. Look back at chapter 10 here, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Watch this now. Without wavering. You see that there? So he doesn't just give us the content of our hope, the sacrifice of Christ, the the, the salvation that comes through Christ once for all sacrifice, but he also gives us the manner in which we resolve to keep our confession. He says one word here, without wavering. In the Greek, it's actually one word. It's aklines. Now, let me just highlight this word for us for a second. Aklines is actually a compound word of two words. You have the alpha privative, ah, and then you have kline, which the word ah is a negator, right? It's just kind of like atheist, right? Uh, agnostic, right? So, here he says, without wavering. So, Akline, and kline literally means interesting word, only time it is ever found in the entire New Testament right here in this verse. Another one of those hapax legominas, where the word literally speaks of the unwillingness to swerve to the left or to the right. Uh, Philo, in extra-biblical literature, outside of the New Testament, in historical documents, he used this word to describe the attributes of God, that his attributes were unswerving, unwavering, that, that God's attributes were simple. That, what that means is they don't change. You can't add anything to them. They are just like a rock, and they don't cline. They don't swerve. The, the word also means to bend. They don't bend. How many people in evangelicalism right now are bending? How many people right now in evangelicalism are swerving on the terminology that they're adopting in terms of the whole LGBTQ community thing? How many many people have already shifted sides to talking about there's nothing wrong with same-sex attraction. It's just It's normal for some people. It's as normal for some people as it is for you. When the book of Romans calls it unnatural. Oh, but but that doesn't get you an interview on CNN, don't you see? That's not going to get you a high position in the company if you keep talking like that. You know, the book of Hebrews presents Christianity and the church as one that because of its wilderness experience can expect hard times to come. If you expect things to get better and better and better, right? And I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but if you really think that what is promised to you in the Bible, and and I know we know this, 
But eschatologically speaking, if we really believe the culture, the world, as we, as we become more and more of a global community, you, you've been seeing that develop, by the way? We're just becoming more globalized. Everything has to do, not with America anymore, everything has to do with what the world as a whole is doing. Every candidate, it seems, is referring to, well, in other countries they do this, in other countries they do this. And I just say that to say, we're in this world that the Bible calls the present evil age. And the present evil age, according to Jesus, is, is crooked and perverse. And we cannot possibly expect for this evil, present evil age to become anything less than what, what God has consigned it to be, which is devoid of God, devoid of hope, devoid of salvation, devoid of the wisdom of God. Don't forget that the reason, part of the reason, this might be the craziest, most controversial thing I'll say all day, that part of the reason why the world is so crazy, as crazy as it is, is because the Bible says God has rendered the wisdom of the world foolishness. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. God has so, He has so uh, rendered the wisdom of this world foolish that as the world continues to strive after its wisdom, it will get further and further and further away from God. That's the way God set it up. That's not just, oh, that's the way the world just sort of happened to develop culturally. No. No. See, remember who's in charge of this whole planet. NASA's always looking for other alternative inhabitable planets. They talked about they just found a bunch. Yeah, you first, buddy. Anyway. This habitable planet has only one sovereign. God. And the course of this world may seem as if it's completely out of control to all of us. Think of what the UN is. I've heard this said before. The UN is a bunch of people in a room with headsets on trying to understand each other, and when they understand each other, they disagree. Babel is still relevant today. And therefore, we understand there's one sovereign, there's ultimately one king, there's one person in control, and guess what? This world is not an endless succession of unguided events. This world is actually producing precisely what it is that God has ordained for it to produce. Namely, the assembling of a new humanity in Christ. Don't look to the UN. Don't look to what is, you know, what people, how people are uniting on different fronts, racial, ethnic, social, economic, spiritual. The only humanity that God is ultimately concerned with in terms of salvation is the new humanity that He is creating in Jesus Christ as He brings this new humanity together out of every tribe and tongue and nation of the world. People might look Cultural commentators and socialists, or, or not socialists like Bernie Sanders, people that study culture, oh, what's the word It's escaping me? Sociologists, thank you, Robert, like David Wells, prolific contemporary reformed evangelical sociologist David Wells. They may look at the world in America and see it collapsing, but do you understand that simultaneously as we watch the culture around us crumble, I've said this before, but just to bring it back to, 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 to alert us and, and, and awaken us to this, that now and today, Christianity is predominantly an Asian-African religion. I don't know if you know that. Christianity today in planet Earth in the 21st century is no longer a Western, European, Caucasian religion. It is now predominantly, not even close, by the way, predominantly Asian and African. You think God is up to something in the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's not really concerned with the next election. I, that I can tell you. That's, who does that sound like? Let me just bring this whole thing into focus and talk about what is it that keeps us together as we is, is it the fact that we are staunch in our beliefs? It is the fact that we are unwavering in ourselves? Oh, that's what we're called unto. But what is the reality that undergirds and supports 
and, and gives life to our hope. Look at the book of Hebrews, so perfectly put. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for, and this is the first explanatory clause of the verse, for the explanation or even the basis, he who promised is faithful. Who's going to bring us through? Who's going to get us out of this? Okay, today it's Target. Tomorrow it's Costco. You shop there? After that, it's Starbucks. I shop there. My wife knows. She reminds me that I shop there all the time. And the next thing is going to be your job. And the next thing, you won't be able to go into public without being in some way, in some form, or some fashion asked to participate in the pagan culture. This is nothing new for God. Just study church history. We are a little bubble of time. We are so unique in what we've experienced under evangelicalism, post-enlightenment, and leading up to the days of Billy Graham, where evangelicalism literally became the predominant worldview in America. And guess what? As fast as we went up, that fast we're coming back down. Because prior to that, prior to the, 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 19, uh, the 20th century, prior to that, guess what was, what was the predominant thing going on? It was liberalism. It was liberalism. In the 1800s, predominantly, the scholarship was monopolized by the liberals, by the German higher critics, the textual critics of, of Germany. It was ultimately a naturalistic, anti-supernatural, denying miracles like Karl Barth, or excuse me, not Karl Barth, but uh, Rudolf Boltmann, denying that miracles happened, denying that miracles were possible. Christianity was in complete crisis back then. It was only because of the advent of evangelicalism. And the reason I thought of Karl Barth is because Karl Barth, even though he had a defective view of the Bible, Karl Barth actually uh, argued vehemently for the, for, the, for the viability of miracles. But we are entering a very, very interesting time right now. And what I can point us to more than anything is the faithfulness of God. He who promised is faithful. But how does the faithfulness of God here operate? When the author of Hebrews says, he who promised is faithful, what is he talking about? Are we to break out our Bible promise books and start going down the list? God promises to provide for you this, that, and the other thing. The word of faith has made an entire, uh, a whole uh, empire of false teaching based on what it is that God can do for you. But you see, in Hebrews here, when it talks about God being faithful to His promises, ultimately, this is referring back to the context of Hebrews, that God was faithful to the redemptive promises that He executed in Christ. That is what God is faithful to. In other words, it's pointing us back to the cross. It's pointing us back to the work of Christ. There's no question about it. God is faithful in every way. Let me just give you a few verses on this before we close. God is faithful in the whole realm of salvation. We know this. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. That is talking about election, and so is Romans 3, 3. What then? If some do not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Of course not. May it never be. He's also faithful in the Christian life. He is faithful to sanctify us. He is faithful in our struggle with our flesh. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world that is, that is surrounded and saturated with sin that is so easily accessible, it is imperative that we believe that God is faithful in our sanctification. But with every temptation, He will provide a way of escape. Isn't that glorious? so that you will be able to endure it. If God wasn't faithful to us in that, 
our sins would instantly overtake us. But God is faithful. He's also covenantally faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9, he told the children of Israel, know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. He keeps covenant with His uh, and His loving kindness to a thousand generations, watch this, with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Because many of the people that were in the Old Covenant perished. So the Old Covenant itself, preparing us to understand the ultimate covenant faithfulness of God is received by those who love Him and who obey His commands. That is what is granted to us in the new covenant in Christ. Therefore, question for us, what is the application of this text today? You know, recently here, I'm just talking with people, the fact that my wife is pregnant, we're expecting our first child. I've been talking about kids a little bit more. But I've listened to many of you parents in this church and parents outside of this church, and something that is a predominant theme that keeps reoccurring is talk about just how bleak the future is for our kids. Uh, if, have you seen the rise of radical Islam here in the West? They just built a mosque next to the Costco that my wife and I always go to, spend way too much money there, but anyway focuses on the mosque. This mosque is towering above the Costco. And ironically, right next to the mosque is an all-American Little League uh, batting range. And towering next to that Little League, all-American Little League batting range, guess what, is a giant mosque. I've actually gone there, hope they don't get a hold of this footage, I've actually gone there and I've spied out what kind of Muslims are going in and out of there, and I can tell you they're serious Muslims. They're not liberals. Um, you understand that our kids are going to grow up in a wildly different world than us. 200,000 at least, maybe higher than that, 200,000 Muslims in North Dallas alone. Texas leads the nation in mosque construction. The Muslim Brotherhood has more associations, chapters, and groups across college campuses than Republicans and Democrats combined. What kind of world are our kids going to inherit? So, and then we can look at the moral implications. We can look at the homosexual agenda. We can look at the economic future. We could look at all these perilous things. How good are you at giving hope to your kids. It's not just about presenting a dire future, folks, but this is precisely where the gospel is so effective because you can tell them there is a hope. So what's the application? I zero in on the word hope because he could have said the confession of our gospel, the confession of Christ, the confession of faith. He could have said the confession of our salvation, but he chose the word hope. Because it, it means this is how you're going to live for the next 25 years. It means this is how you're going to face a, the onslaught of a postmodern culture and all of its liberal anti Christian agendas that are coming. Hope. Please point yourself and point your children to the hope that is given to them, to you, in the gospel. Every time, a t uh, every time a scary story appears in the news, bring, bring, bring the fathers, dads, husbands, bring the whole family back to hope in Christ. Don't leave them there in terror. Bring them back to what is our hope really about? It's a hope that transcends the present evil age. And praise God, it is a hope that is solid. Where in Deuteronomy, God is called the rock. Why? Because, 
Deuteronomy 32.4, He is a God of faithfulness. He is faithful to His promises. He is faithful to His children. He is faithful through the Gospel. And therefore, the pastor of the letter of Hebrews sets in front of the church the greatness of their future reward. Listen to this and look with me. Let's close here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 36. As so many today in this pretending age are throwing away their hope. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, 10.35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Does your house function in an eschatological fashion? A constant hope now because Future reward is coming and it is certain. Is that how your house functions? I'm going to pray for you that it does. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, I I pray the eschatology of Scripture would not be a source that trips us up, but as the author of Hebrews meant it to be, that our future eschatology, our future hope, would be that which fuels our endurance today. That the certainty of our reward would be that which fuels our perseverance, our endurance now. And so help us, dear Lord, as we look upon our own lives, lives of our kids and families and futures, help us, Lord, to Live out the words of Jesus where He said, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Do not store your treasure here on earth. Put your treasure in heaven. Lord, we pray that You would give us the strength to do that, Lord, against all of the oppressive spiritual onslaught that we face. Help us to understand that like with Israel, You are the rock in the wilderness. We thank You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.